Good morning to each one of you. I greet you in the precious name of Jesus again this morning. It's good to be here to worship with you. I hope you were listening in Sunday school. A couple of the foundational things that I'm going to touch on here this morning, we talked about, hit a couple of them in our Sunday school lesson this morning. As we thought about pride, one of the downfalls of King Hezekiah, and also about our place, who we are in connection to how important do I think I am to my surroundings? Am I the one that is the focus? Can life continue on if I'm not there? Or am I the focus of the people around me? We're going to continue talking about idolatry. And this morning, I'm going to zero in on three of them. Lord willing, I don't know if we'll get through all three of them in depth. But when Nelson had called me or checked with me about coming to share, one of the topics or options he gave me was about social media and addressing that. And I'm going to incorporate that into the broader subject of idolatry this morning. Also look a little bit at materialism. And then at the end, we'll look at sports just a little bit as I think about some of the gods around us. So if you were here last night, <clears throat> I challenged you with a list of a number of different things that can divert our attention from God. And for each one of us, that may be slightly different. Those things that are in my life that steal my one affection that I should have for our God in my everyday life. And so as we go through the message this morning, I want you to make application in your life. So we're going to look at three of them, maybe broaden it out a little bit. But the principles are the same. You can make application in your life this morning. You can turn to Ezekiel chapter 14 as a foundation again in the Old Testament. The Old Testament has many things to say about idolatry. And uh, the downfall of Israel as, they, as we look at their story. And also we get a glimpse of where, how God feels about idolatry. And how much God hates that sin in our life. And the seriousness of idolatry. And this is another one of those examples here. Ezekiel chapter 14. I'll read the first eight verses. Thinking about, we're going to begin by looking at social media. Or maybe a little more the idea of the worship of self. How do I view myself? And am I elevating myself that it's getting in the way of my humility before a holy God. Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 1, says, Then came certain of the elders of Israel unto me, and sat before me. And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, these men have set up their idols in their heart, and put stumbling block of their iniquity before their face. Should I, be, should I inquire of them, of at all by them, sorry, should I inquire of all, at all by them. Therefore, speak unto them and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Every man of the house of Israel that setteth up an idol in his heart and putteth the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face and cometh to the prophet, I the Lord will answer him that cometh according to the multitude of his idols, that I may take the house of Israel in their own heart because they are all estranged from me through their idols. Therefore, say unto the house of Israel, and Thus saith the Lord God, Repent. And turn yourselves from your idols, and turn away your face from all your abominations. For every one of the house of Israel, or of the stranger that sojourneth in Israel, which separateth himself from me, and setteth up his idol in his heart, and putteth the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face, and cometh to a prophet to inquire of him concerning me, I the Lord will answer him myself. Verse 8. And I will set my face against that man, and will make him a sign and a proverb, and will cut him off 
from the midst of my people, and ye shall know that I am the Lord. So I'll stop there. This is again an Old Testament prophecy. And as we jump into some of these, it's a little hard to get the setting and to see exactly what's happening. But I want you to notice the phrase. It says it, I believe, three times in those verses that he put the stumbling block of their iniquity before their face. In other words, as I think about those objects or those affections that are drawing my heart away from God, it's something that I put before my face. And it's a stumbling block. Something that causes me to stumble. And God, as he's giving this prophecy to Ezekiel, he says that he's going to come and he's going to visit them and he's going to separate them from him. Those people that put that stumbling block before their face, something they can see. And I want you to keep that in mind as we look at the idea of specifically social media and technology and some of the things that are pressuring us in our churches today very recently. Something that is new in terms of history as we think about those things before our eyes that are put before our face. He also said he's going to answer them according to the multitude of their idols. So it gives the picture that they had more than one. And again, as we evaluate our lives, if we conquer one area, there's always the tendency that something else is going to draw our attention to it in another direction, especially as we're bombarded with the connection that we have in the world today. We need to constantly be on guard. And he says he's going to answer them according to the multitude of those idols. He's not going to just address maybe the main one. He notices all of those idols. And then at the end there, he says, I, the Lord, will answer him by myself. So we are accountable to God, just like Israel was accountable to God for their actions and what they were putting before their face. We also are accountable to God for what we're doing, what's in our heart. And I mentioned those verses last night. God can see right into our heart. He knows what's there. So we're not going to hide it from him. And he's going to answer us according to that. And then in the end, the last part of verse 8, it says, And ye shall know that I am the Lord. Just like our brother said in Israel, God is going to win. God is going to be victorious. He is going to be the ultimate authority. Whether I bow myself to him, whether I set that idol up, in the end, God is going to be victorious. Am I going to surrender my life to him? And am I going to live a victorious Christian life right now as I live for him every day? So just a foundation, we're not going to go back there, but you can look at these prophecies in the Old Testament and pick out some of the things that were the downfall of Israel, and they're surprisingly applicable today to our lives. A stumbling block before our face. First of all, we're going to dig into social media a little bit. The interaction among people in which they create and share and exchange information and ideas in a virtual community and network. And I'm no expert on technology. I use a computer, I teach school, and I don't particularly like technology. I like it when it works. I don't like fixing it. So I'm no expert, and I'm not going to address all the different forms. It's constantly changing as we look at what is the newest and greatest and what people are using to connect through near and far, and also positive and negative. So I'm going to address, obviously, mostly the negative. There are positives, and that is the way that we justify some of our use. So it's not all negative, but I challenge you to think this morning about those things that are stealing my affection, my time, my energy, and my focus from God. G.K. Chesterton said, the most horrible religions are those that encourage self-worship. 
And I think he's right. As you look at those things that cause us to worship ourselves, and clearly as we look at technology and specifically social media, it causes a lot of self-worship. And it is a false god that is increasing today in our society around us. And when that happens, it comes into our churches, unfortunately. Because we live in the culture that we're surrounded with. And we need to be people that are on guard against this. Another quote from Sherry Turkle from a secular perspective. She said, we may experience moments of more, but lives of less. And as I thought about that, we have moments of more. We have more connections, more interaction, more knowledge. You can pretty much find out the information you need about anything. And you can also find out it from the perspective that you want to receive it if you look hard enough. But over all of that, we have lives of less. And I think the reason why, from a Christian perspective, is that we don't have those personal relationships that God has designed for us to cultivate. The fellowship of a body of believers, the fellowship of good friends, godly mentors that can speak into our lives. And as we are surrounded with all of these things, we lose that connection. A couple of challenges as I think about social media, and I may jump around a little bit, and I apologize for that. So number one, as we think about the idea of social media and why is it God, I think it is very humanistic. And humanism is the love or the promotion of self, what I desire, what is best for me, what pleases me, what makes me feel good. So if you look at your life and you evaluate those things that may be potentially idols in my life, they fit into this category, many of them. Those things that make me feel good, that promote what I desire, and those things then that I want as best for myself. In other words, they're selfish at the very core. And our Sunday school lesson talked about pride. And as we look at pride, Ezekiel 28, another verse from Ezekiel, talking about the king of Sidon, I believe it was, there, the king of Tyrus. He says that he set himself up as a god, and then in Ezekiel's response, he says, no, you're not God. And many times we say, well, we're not going to exalt ourselves to the level of a god, but by our actions and what we're serving and what we're, how we're fulfilling those desires, we're basically elevating ourselves to a level of God. And the true God simply said in that case, that you're not God. You're nowhere close, even though you're the king, even though you're the ruler, and it's the same is true for all of us today. Number two, when we think about social media, it is the worshiping of the projected image of human perfection. And maybe that doesn't make sense on the surface, but if you think about what you are looking at, those people that you're following, those events that you're looking at, and where you're going for advice, or for information, we oftentimes worship the projected image of perfection. Why the celebrity culture is so rampant in our world is because we're looking at them as the ultimate form of human perfection. And something about us draws us to them. Idolatry is to set before our eyes, to fixate upon and strive toward images that depict an ideal state of human experience to fixate upon something that projects an ideal state of human perfection. And so many times, I believe, when we are looking at those things, we're detached from reality, and I'll talk about that just a little bit, 
but we detach from reality and we are looking at this situation, this person that we're following, they have it all together. They're projecting an image of perfection and so that becomes my focus, to be like them and to develop that image of perfection. Where are we going to find perfection this morning? In Christ. The only place that we can find that true perfection is in Jesus Christ. And while we're working towards that, we're not going to reach that perfection here, but we're to be working towards that. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says we're to be perfect as our Father in Heaven is perfect. We're to be moving towards that perfection, not towards the ideal life that some celebrity or friend that you are idolizing is putting out there. That's not the perfection we're looking for. We're looking for that perfection in Christ. And as we allow all of these things to come before our eyes, we can begin to worship them. They draw our affection away. Corey Anderson says, Idolatry is not just the tangible wooden stone or metal objects made by man. Modern idolatry is also human depictions or images. So those depictions or images that are put out there. And with the advance of technology today and artificial intelligence and some of those things that are coming more relevant on the scene, you can't even trust those images anymore. And as we put them there and then we look at those and they may not even be a real image, something that is just completely made up. In the age of Facebook and Instagram, and there's a whole list of other ones to go with that, we can become obsessed with the projecting, or sorry, obsessed with projecting the image of a perfect life, perfect relationship, perfect holidays, perfect friendship group. Just choose your filter, and in one click, your life can look like everybody else's dream come true. And so many times, as people do that, they begin to put out their the good things of life, they ignore all the realities, and we get this idea that life is going to be some great, grand experiment. I want to be like them because those people, they have the latest gadgets, they have the latest coffee drinks, they have the latest places that they're traveling, and we want to be like them. They're projecting that image of perfection. The followers emulate their idols' look, temperament, talk, mannerisms, purchase paraphernalia, Jerseys, jewelry, food, and the images set before their eyes. And many times you'll say, well, I might be following this person or this team or this celebrity. And I didn't even look who has the most followers today. I should have checked. But as we do that, we say, well, it doesn't affect us. Those people are out there in the world. But you look how often you hear people talking the same way, saying the same words, doing the same things. Those images are affecting us, if we are honest. And we need to be careful of that. Number three, radical individualism. Omar Miller says, individualism is a worldly concept. When brought into the church, it undermines the very foundation of a living church. And I believe one of the clear dangers of the idol of self-worship or social media or wherever you're setting that idol up is that it destroys the brotherhood. And when we focus on pleasing myself, that individualistic idea, then the brotherhood suffers and it flounders and we can't have that body of believers that's working together, that we know each other, we care for each other. That radical individualism undermines the foundation of a living church. Eric Turner in his book, Hollow Gods, he says this, the freedom to achieve is an admirable right, but when wedded to radical individualism through vows of greed and success at any cost, 
it becomes an insatiable false god. It is true that once radical individualism takes root in a culture, the decline and eventual collapse of any sense of morality is not far behind. Very well put. The freedom to achieve, that's one of the foundations that America was built on. The freedom that I can become successful in my life, that idea that I stand alone. I'm in charge of my life. I stand alone. And when that comes into our church, it becomes this insatiable desire for more. And in a societal sense, he says there that this radical individualism will lead to the decline of morality. And I think that's very true. Radical individualism, one of the dangers of setting up this idol of self in my life. Number four, a detachment from reality. I mentioned this already. But life, especially the Christian life, is not always going to be a life of healthy, wealthy, wise, and success. As we look at the followers of Jesus Christ, last year in school I taught church history, and looking at it specifically, we started back at the time of the apostles all the way up through the Reformation. And if you look at Christianity through 2,000 years, there are many, many, many faithful Christians who have not experienced anywhere close to what we have today. And they were not detached from reality. Their Christian life was very real that it was going to be a life of suffering. It was going to be a life of denial. And yet today, as we set up these images, we want this ideal life of perfection. I want to enjoy all of these great things because that's what I deserve. Somehow we get to that point. As I elevate myself to the level of a God, I then begin to think that I deserve all of these things. One illustration, and this isn't from mine, I'm not sure even who wrote it, it says, driving down a highway one day, I noticed a large billboard advertisement for an apartment complex. What piqued my interest was the promise of a virtual tour of available apartments simply by visiting a website. Cyberspace has opened a whole new world of virtual experiences to the connected generation. Of course, there was one significant drawback to a virtual experience. It isn't real life. It's almost life. The virtual house hunter won't be able to meet the neighbors or smell the mold or hear the ambient sounds of local traffic or even be sure of the hue of the granite countertops. The virtual world represents a real world, but it is in a very superficial way. Did you know that it is possible to live our lives as though we're on a virtual tour? We do this when we live as if there's no deeper meaning or purpose to our lives. Sadly, people seem to be completely unaware of the danger of living only on the, surf, only on the surface. Obliviously, they live a life void of the depth of experience intended by our Creator. So many of us, hopefully not, but we become detached from reality. Our life becomes this virtual tour as it were where we're not really seeking God completely we're not really worshiping him in spirit and truth but we're going through life where everything is on the surface everything is those things that we can see that's what matters in my life and that it becomes the focus of my life so I challenge you to think about that scripture teaches us to be worshipers those people that are bowing down and worshiping the one true God and if our life is consumed by the virtual around us, those superficial things, we're not going to be true worshipers. Another one just to think about quickly. Self-exaltation leads to rebellion against God and other authorities. When I set up myself as a God, 
or that image of what I want to be, it leads to a rebellion against God and other authorities. The struggle to submit to the authority over us is compounded by social media and technology. I want you to think about that. I think it is true, and it comes closer home than most of us, even myself, care to admit. As I put myself as someone that I am evaluating as a God. You can turn to Luke chapter 16, familiar couple verses, and I want to help us understand from this account, maybe read a little bit into it, just a short example here in Luke chapter 16. And it's part of Jesus giving a longer discourse here. Luke 16 has a number of fascinating verses, and I mentioned a couple of them last night. And Jesus here interacting with the Pharisees, and he's talking about them. He's talking about a steward, and he's talking about um, not committing adultery, and he's talking about a number of different things in Luke chapter 16. I want us to look at verses 19 to 21, a couple familiar verses. Verse 19 it says, there was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus which was laid at his gate full of sores and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man died also and was buried. And it goes on there to give the account of the rich man being in hell, lifting up his eyes and him pleading for someone to go back and to witness to his brethren. Someone said this, The sin of the rich man would not be a sin in the eyes of most societies. There is no record of vicious glaring sin, no record of vulgar public sin. He was not cruel. He never ordered Lazarus from his gate, nor refused Lazarus the crumbs from his table. He was not a tyrant, nor was he an oppressor of the poor, nor a monstrous member of society. Rather, he was probably socially responsible, an upright citizen, a respected and well-liked. No earthly court would ever think of arresting or condemning him. In society's eyes, he was honored and highly esteemed. People like him liked him and spoke well of him. What then was his sin? I want you to think. So this man, had of, he had social media. People would have been following him. He was a rich man. He was someone of prominence, someone of importance. And yet... As we look at this account, he ended up in hell. So what did he do? What was the problem with his life? And we don't have a lot of details about him, but I want you to think about this in the context of social media. Social media has become a god when my lifestyle surrenders, surrenders or, sorry, sorry, when my social media has become a god when my lifestyle centers around impressing other people. When my lifestyle centers around impressing other people. And this man talks about his clothing sumptuously as the idea of flamboyantly. He was out there. He was someone that people noticed. He was putting on a show. His lifestyle surrounded the people around him. He wanted them to be impressed. And that was the focus of his life. He was also filled with pleasure. And he gives a picture there of this man that he's at ease. He's sitting there and he's enjoying life. Number two... Social media has become a god when it causes us to be complacent. It causes us to begin to not take life seriously. And I think that's a real danger, and you can apply that to any idol, anything that you're struggling with this morning. But when that thing has become something that makes us feel good or to take away the urgency and importance of living a godly life, 
has caused us to become complacent. Social media has become a god, number three, when I stop caring about the needs around me, the real needs of people around me. So the focus, if you want to test this morning, think about how much do you care for the people around you? Do you want them to like you? Do you want them to follow you? Do you want them to see what you're doing? Or are you looking for the needs around you? Are you looking for those people that need help? And if our focus shifts from the world, other people, to myself, then I want people to see me instead of looking for those needs around me. And if you're like me, many times we're too busy and we're consumed with other things and we got lots of things to do and we don't really look at, for the needs around us. And as those idols consume my time and my energy, I no longer have time to do that. And I don't look at those people that are there. Matthew chapter 25, I'm not going to read the verses there, but Jesus, as he talks about the reward and he says those, who is going to be those servants that are going to say, well done? Who was it? It was the ones that fed the hungry. They clothed them. They noticed them. They paid attention to them. They met the needs of the people around them. And those are the ones that he says at the end there, well done, thou good and faithful servant. The ones that were paying attention to the people around them. Social media has become an idol when it blinds me to sin in my life. 1 Corinthians 5, 6 and 7 says, Your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump as ye are unleavened. A little bit, like I said last night, once that idol begins to take root, it is very difficult to weed it out. A couple other things to think about on social media before we move on. Is gossip really a sin? Is gossip really a sin? One of the great things in our Mennonite cultures is the connections that we have. However, with the rise of social media, it becomes even easier for us to share things that are really just gossip. Are they important? Am I building people up or am I tearing them down? So is gossip really a sin? Number, another question to think about, do I struggle to develop, maintain, or begin new relationships? Am I struggling to develop real relationships? And if so, then I need to look at those idols in my life. And another question yet, have I become bored with the things of God? Have I become bored with the things of God? Has the excitement and the desire to see other people and to do what other people and to experience those same things has that caused me to become bored with the things of God think about that has social media become an idol to me 2 Corinthians 10 17 18 says but he that glorieth let him glory in the Lord for not he that commendeth himself is approved but whom the Lord commendeth very simply he's saying there let him that glorieth glory in the Lord are you glorying in the Lord this morning is the Lord the focus of your life? Are you experiencing that joy of living for him? Or have you set yourself up as an idol, as something that you want people to notice, people to see, and my lifestyle revolves around impressing other people? Number two, let's look at money and materialism. When it comes to idols, this is one that is picked on quite frequently. And yet, I think as we evaluate our lives and the blessings that we have, it's very, very easy in our society for this to take our focus away from God. Ken Hughes says, North Americans are pleasure-minded, self-indulgent, materialistic, and selfish. 
That's a pretty harsh assessment. And yet, he's probably at least partially right. And unfortunately, when that happens in our society, it also happens in our churches today. Materialism is a preoccupation with or emphasis on material objects and comforts. So not just the idea of getting money, but the occupation with physical comforts. And in a time when I can click anytime, basically on Amazon, I can get things delivered to my door that I need immediately within a very short period of time with very little effort. So I want those comforts. I'm missing something in my life and I want it. I want it now and I want to, I'm not going to deny myself because I can have it. I have enough of money, I can get it. And so I'm not going to deny myself those comforts. Has that taken place in my life and is it affecting my Christian life? Having money and possessions does not automatically make you materialistic. You'll be very clear on that. Just because you have it doesn't mean you're materialistic. On the flip side of that, you can be poor and still be materialistic. Money can still be your focus. Our tendency is to look at someone who has more than I have and accuse them of materialism. So we tend to view people that have more than us as, you know, maybe they're focused a little too much on. And people that have less than us, well, they should work harder because if they need money and they need handouts because they're not working hard enough. That's not how the Bible portrays money and possessions. And it becomes very easy for us to fall into that mindset. Someone has said money will buy a bed but not sleep, book but not brains, food but not an appetite, finery but not beauty, a house but not a home, medicine but not health, amusements but not happiness, a crucifix but not a savior, religion but not salvation, a good life but not eternal life, a passport to everywhere but heaven. Very true. So many of those things that we long and we strive for, and for you as men especially, you know, we are called to work, we work, we have occupations, and that's good. We are called to support our families and to be responsible, to be good stewards of what God has given us. But there's a fine line between that becoming something that we need to do, something that is good and wholesome, and something that becomes the focus and object of our worship that we need to guard against. Let me give you a number of things to consider here quickly about money. So money becomes our God when it divides our loyalties. And you can apply this to any false God this morning. But when that loyalty is divided, then it is a false God. So when our loyalty is divided, then money has become a God. Matthew 6, 24, a familiar verse there in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says it very clearly. No man can serve two masters. You're either going to love the one or hate the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. He says you cannot do it. And people down through the ages, and maybe more today than ever, are trying to do that. Serve two. Serve both gods. And it's not going to work. When you have those divided loyalty, Jesus clearly says it can't be done. And yet, time and time again, people try to prove him wrong. If I was to ask you who was General George Washington's most daring and maybe the general that had the most potential, who would you say it was? So I like history, and I've taught U.S. history a couple of years. And as you look at the examples in history, one of the greatest generals in George Washington's army that had the most potential was Benedict Arnold. And nobody, when you think of the name Benedict Arnold, you don't think of a great general. You think of a traitor, someone that betrayed the cause. And the reason? He was in debt. He began to accumulate debt. He wanted to live a lavish lifestyle. Some of it was because his wife was a loyalist. And so there was some connection there. 
but he became indebted and he wanted to live a lavish lifestyle. And as a result of that, the British were able to get him to change sides. When our loyalty is divided, we're going to change sides. And that is still true today in your life and in our Christian walk with God. Number two, if money, money has become a God, if it's where I put my trust. Have you ever heard that term financially secure? You're trying to be financially secure. So how much money do you need to be financially secure? We're not going to reach financial security. If you put your trust in your finances and in your bank account and in your portfolio and in your stockpile of things, that's not security. It can all be gone in an instant. And as you look at the turmoil in the world, I wonder sometimes if that might happen. All of that is gone. How much value do you put in money? So when I put my trust there, 1 Timothy 6.17 says, Charge them that are rich in this world, and that be all of us, in the context of this world, we're very rich, that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. All of those things come from God. And when we forget that, when we begin to trust in them, our money is becoming God. Number three, our money becomes a God when it becomes more important than people. And I mentioned this already. As we think about the value of people in relationships, when I am willing to take advantage of other people, then money has become a God. And if you deal in sales at all and in interaction with people, you know you're going to have those opportunities to cheat and people want to get as much as they can and to drive a hard bargain. But when money becomes more important than people, it is a God. Another thing to think about is there discontent or is there division in your marriage over money? The number one often said, the thing that people fight about or couples fight about is money. If that is true, then you better evaluate if money has become a God. Has it become the focus of your life? Number four, money has become a God when we are consumed with worry about it. What do you worry about this morning? What are you concerned about? Are you worrying about money? Are you sitting here worrying about next week, what you're going to do, how you're going to pay your bills? And there is a certain amount of that, that as responsible stewards, that we're going to have those times in life when we may lose sleep over some things and decisions that we're going to make. But Ecclesiastes 5.12 says, The sleep of a laboring man is sweet, whether he hath little or much, but the abundance of the rich will suffer him to sleep, or not suffer him to sleep. Are we consumed by worry? Jesus there in the Sermon on the Mount again in verse 32, he says, After all these things do the Gentiles seek. These are the things that the Gentiles are worrying about, but you, as a kingdom citizen of this new upside-down kingdom that I'm introducing, those are not what you're to worry about. Those are what the Gentiles worry about. You are to worry about building my kingdom here on earth. Number five, money has become a God when it leads us into unnecessary temptation. 1 Timothy 6, 9, familiar verses there, there again says, But they that be rich fall into temptation and a snare into many foolish and hurtful lusts. Because of the abundance of things, just like the abundance of connections with social media, they lead us into temptation. And when that happens, I need to evaluate how I am handling that. How am I controlling my money or is it controlling me? Is it opening doors to a lot of temptations that I wouldn't need to face? Number six, money has become a God when I begin to evaluate people by their wealth instead of their character. 
And this is true, unfortunately, in our churches. And someone made this analysis. It said, if a member of the church is a drunk, we would require them to clean up their life to remain part of the church. If someone in the church is intoxicated with money and things, on the other hand, we tend to elevate that person. Very true. If money is how we identify them or we put them in a place of respect or authority because of money, then you need to look at how much emphasis and how important that wealth and those things have become in my life. Number seven, money has become a God when it causes me to join the culture of consumerism. And I believe maybe we're all guilty of this. As we look at the ability to purchase things and to have things and the amount of things that we possess and the amount of things that we consume, if that has become our focus, we don't have to have a lot of money. We can have a lot of things. And those things take our time, our energy, and draw us away from the things of God. So many of those things. One more yet, as we think about money, if I tend to hoard instead of give. So money has become a God if I tend to hoard instead of give. Turn to Luke chapter 12. Challenge you with a thought or two here as we finish up on money. In our Sunday school, one of the brothers read the verses there from Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 8, I believe, where the warning there where God gave that if you go into the promised land, when you are eaten, when you have eaten and are full, when God has blessed all these things, what does he say you're supposed to do? You're supposed to enjoy them? He says, no, you're supposed to not forget God. Those things came from God. And as I look at our culture and the blessings that are poured out on us, that same warning is relevant today. When you are eaten, when you have eaten, and when you're full, beware that you don't forget God. And it's a real danger as I think about my life, and I think it's a challenge for all of us. And that progression there is interesting. It is kind of the same progression that I have down here. Prosperous, satisfied at ease, complacent, indifferent, and forgotten. And there is a progression as you look at wealth and money. You become prosperous, satisfied, at ease, then complacent, then indifferent, and then God is forgotten. Luke chapter 12. A couple of verses here. Again, a challenging set of verses here. Jesus is talking about not worrying there in verses 24. And in verse 31, he kind of ch changes gears there. He says, but rather seek ye the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. Verse 32, I want you to catch this verse. Fear not, little flock, for it is in your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Beautiful verse there, lots of meaning. It is in the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He wants to pour out his blessings on you. But then if you go on, what's verse 33 says? Sell what you have and give alms and provide yourselves bags which wax not old nor treasure in heaven that fadeth not away where no thief approacheth neither moth corrupteth. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So he says, I want to give you the kingdom. It is my desire to give my kingdom to you as a church here this morning i believe that is still god's desire he wants to give you the kingdom as a little flock as those faithful few that are still serving him in a world of corruption he wants to give you the kingdom but he's not going to give that in wealth the very next verse says that you're to sell you're to give these things and to lay up treasure in heaven and that's a challenge as we think about a tough command 
to lay up treasure in heaven. God wants to bless you, but he's saying that isn't going to come always. It may, but it's not going to always come in the form of money and possessions. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Very simple. One illustration yet. The Russian Mennonites in Russia, it's fascinating. As they went there and settled, there were two main colonies as they began those new settlements there in Russia. And the one was much more affluent than the other one. And as you look at the trajectory of those two colonies, the one that had more money, more possessions, became liberal, if you want to use that term, much quicker. Because that affluence affected their lifestyle and it affected spirituality. And that warning is still true today. It will affect spirituality. We need to be people of integrity that can recognize the difference. George Shea wrote the song, I'd Rather Have Jesus. And he, his mother actually put that poem together one morning on the piano. And he wrote it, put it to music and played it that same morning in church. And we sing that song different times. But think about the words. I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses and lands. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hand. I'd rather have Jesus than men's applause. I'd rather be faithful to his dear cause. I'd rather have Jesus than worldwide fame. I'd rather be true to his holy name. Than to be the king of a vast domain, to be held in sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. Can you say that? I'd rather have Jesus than anything else in the world today. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hand. Whatever he wants me to do, whatever sacrifice I have to give, I'm going to do it. Because Jesus is everything to me. Number three, in a couple closing minutes here, I want to talk a little bit about sports. So I don't know most of you here, and it's fascinating as I look at young people and work with young people. Many of them like to follow sports. So in Lancaster County, we're fairly close to Philly, and the Phillies are have the potential to go to the World Series. And so I hear things at school about people that are following baseball. And as I look at the influence, these things around us, these gods, they draw our time and our attention away. So I like to play sports. I'm competitive, maybe a little too much competitive. I don't know if I have time to talk about that. The Christian and competition, how does that work together? My sons, so I have four boys, and they're all a little bit too much like me. So when we play things, we have a pickleball thing up in our barn, and we play games in the evening, and it becomes very competitive. My wife wonders if we're even having fun because it's, it can become <laughs> rather loud. And we like to, I like to win. When I play games, I want to win. But as I look at that desire to fill my life with those things, is that what life is about? It's not fun playing games with people that don't want to win, by the way. That's not any fun. But when winning becomes the focus of my life, has it become my God? 70% of Americans, 13 and older, consider themselves sports fans. They discuss, watch, read about sports and sporting events every day. 70%. And when that is that high of a percentage in the culture, inevitably it's going to affect the church. And this is a long, much longer subject than I have time to dig into this morning. But I'll give you a couple of points to consider. I found this illustration, which I liked. It was comparing football fans to churchgoers. Football fans often pay a hefty sum to park their cars and walk long distances to the stadium. The churchgoer expects free and convenient parking close to the building and he will not attend. Football contestants are noisy with loud cheering and enthusiasm of the fans. The churchgoer sits in grim silence and shows no emotion. Football stadium seats are narrow, backless, and assigned. The churchgoer hates a hard pew and insists on a particular seat. 
Football games always last more than three hours, and if they go into overtime, fans consider it a bonus. The churchgoer expects worship to take an hour, and if a pastor does not confine himself to that limit, he may come under pointed rebuke of the faithful. Football fans fail to let any kind of weather influence their attendance at games. The churchgoer needs only a few drops of inclement weather to provide an excuse for absent from worship. And then football tickets for professional team games are expensive. Added to that is the cost of ubiquitous program and exorbitant cost of refreshment. The churchgoer ob objects to the mere mention of money at, the, at an appeal for extra offerings Sorry, an appeal for extra offerings evokes inward and frequent out, frequent, frequently outward groaning, fulfilling the line of the well-known well song, when we asunder part, it gives us inward pain. I thought that's a fairly good, very simple analysis. But when we think about competition, when we think about sports, what is drawing us away from God? Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. You don't have to turn there. This is in the ESV. Notice these words. For the grace of God hath appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. To live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. As I evaluate my activity, and you can take sports or whatever activity you enjoy, whatever entertainment you enjoy, is it something that promotes uprightness? Is it something that promotes self-control? And does it promote godly living in this time? Because he says salvation is for all people. In other words, all of my activities should be able, people seeing them, looking at them, hopefully point people to Jesus Christ, point people to salvation. And you may say, well, that's not quite true because we do a lot of things that don't do that. And you can make arguments for that. But your life should point people to salvation. A couple of things to think about. Sports is a religion, and you can look at what people are doing, and it very clearly is a religion in the world around us. Because of the amount of money spent and the amount of reverence paid to the sports stars, it has become a religion. What makes sports so popular among unregenerate people? Another question to consider. It makes no moral demands on a person. It has the ability to unite people around a common interest. And one of the dangers of sports, the God of sports, is that it, it unites people around something when we should be united around the cause of Jesus Christ and united as a brotherhood. And anything that breaks that apart, causes our allegiance to be focused elsewhere, is a false God. It causes me to identify with something other than God. So sports truly is popular because it becomes my identity. Our spectators participants, when we look at sports, our spectators participants, and you can make arguments either way. Jeff Goldstein of Temple University says the people watching an aggressive sport are likely to become more aggressive themselves, thus the sequence of events tends to perpetuate itself. That is a secular professor at Temple and when we watch something, it influences us. And so by being a spectator, you're a participant in that. Does winning or losing affect my outlook on life? How do I know if sports or entertainment has become a god? Does winning affect my outlook on life? Has the joy of the Lord been suppressed because of these earthly circumstances that have no eternal value? Nothing. It doesn't matter who wins the World Series. It doesn't matter who wins the Super Bowl. They have no eternal value. And yet, as people invest time and money into that, 
Do my standards of modesty change when I play or condone sports? Think about it. If sports is becoming God, then my standards are liable to change when I associate with that. Josh Bruce, he says this, The God of sports is a false God that consumes family and disciples children in the worship of competition. It is the God that demands practice as an offering and winning as a primary goal. The God of sports promises you joy and fulfillment through success, but in the end, it's just another lifeless false God. And I think that was well put. In the end, it's just another lifeless false God. And I had a quote somewhere, I missed it, by one of the pitchers, MLB pitchers, and he said that winning is everything. And that is the idea that we get when we think about sports and competition. If winning becomes everything, then it has become a false god. So think about your life this morning. You can make application. This is just three of the ways, three of the areas of many that take our focus away from God, and we could look at them more in depth. But I want to ask you a question in closing. Many times, especially working with young people and all of us, you get the question, well, what's wrong with that? And you can apply that to watching movies, something I talked about in chapel the other morning at school. So what is wrong with it? And we are, we're very good at saying, well, there's only good things, or I only watch good things, or what's wrong with dressing this way, or what's wrong with this? And I challenge you, when we look at the subject of idolatry, flip that question around. So is there a benefit in doing this? Is there a benefit in this sport? Is there a benefit in this competition? Is there a benefit for God's kingdom in this entertainment? Is there an eternal benefit in the time that I'm spending on social media? Is there eternal value in it? And if I ask the question that way, then it becomes much easier for me to identify what's an idol. Because it, I don't necessarily, it may not necessarily be wrong, but is this activity that I'm doing, this thing that I'm focused on, or the business that I run, am I doing that? What I'm investing there, is it have eternal value? And if the answer is no, then we can evaluate and say, well, my life, I need to cut out some of these things instead of asking the question, what's wrong with it? And justifying what we're doing. So I challenge you, in closing, be honest. Think about your life. What is consuming you? And are you completely sold out and surrendered to Jesus Christ, allowing him to lead you wherever he wants you to go? Or am I looking for those things in life that satisfy and please me? Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for this opportunity to be here this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you most of all for Jesus, what he has done for us. Lord, I pray as we look at our lives, as we look at a dark subject like idolatry, that we can have a positive change in our lives as we evaluate who we are, what our focus is, and Lord, help each one of us to recognize the things in life that have eternal value and that we can focus on them. They can be the things that are important to us and all of those distractions that are around us we can put them aside and we can allow our focus to be continually on you and on building your kingdom. And I pray that each one here could be faithful in doing that. Where you've called them, Lord, you put each one of us here for a purpose and we recognize that. And I pray that each one that is here this morning would find that purpose, fulfill that purpose and be faithful in building your kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.